This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Broadcasting live from Johannesburg, we are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and on Channel 80802 on the DSTV Audio Became. I'm Amanda Machaga. I'm not alone. I'm with Onel Nzinzi, Wissani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour. The DRC's opposition rally calls on the country's government to stop using violence. Analysts say the AU's amnesty can only work if African governments implement existing arms regulations. In economics, Libya's largest oil field remains closed since late on Sunday. And in sports, South Africa's Bafana Bafana hit with injury crisis ahead of World Cup qualifier against Burkina Faso. But first, here's Onele with your news. Thank you, Amanda. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition rally has called on the country's government to stop using violence and leave people to demonstrate when necessary as allowed by the Congolese constitution. The DRC opposition rally statement has come out this Monday as the world celebrated the International Nonviolence Day. The rally emphasized that it's every Congolese duty to prevent anyone trying to remain on power by violating the constitution. General Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. Hundreds of thousands defied instructions from the government and came out to proclaim their independence but met stiff resistance from the military. Local media reported that at least a dozen people were killed in the English-speaking northwest and southwest regions, some shot by military helicopters. At least six soldiers were ambushed and severely wounded. Forty people were arrested. The separatists did not make any declarations but their supporters hoisted flags in road junctions and some public buildings. One person has died in the western Kenyan town Sia during protests called by the opposition to demand the removal of electoral commission officials. Police used tear gas to disperse protesters in several opposition strongholds as western diplomats warned hardliners on both sides that the country risked travel and visa bans if they did not calm supporters ahead of a rerun of elections later this month. U.S. Ambassador to Kenya Robert Godek. My government will take steps under U.S. law to hold people accountable. There are many different potential measures that we could take, and I'm not going to get into a lengthy speculation about them. But I will say that, obviously, visa bans and other travel uh, measures are one possibility. And the U.K. reserves the right to take appropriate action, which may include refusing and revoking visas. Libyan militant Ahmed Abu Qatala, accused of leading the September 11, 2012 attack on an American diplomatic compound in Benghazi that left the U.S. ambassador and three others dead, went on trial today. Ahmed Abu Qatala is charged with 18 counts of murder, supporting terrorists and related charges in the trial in the Federal District Court in Washington. This is three years after he was captured in a commando raid and sent by ship to the United States. According to the indictment, he led a group of 
about 20 militants storming the compound. The trial of Katala, who has pleaded not guilty, was stalled by a steady stream of motions challenging the way he was brought to the United States. U.S. President Donald Trump has sent his condolences to the families of those killed as well as hundreds more injured in a shooting at a music festival in Las Vegas. Trump took to Twitter to convey his sympathies. At least 50 people were killed and at least 200 others wounded when lone gunman 64-year-old Stephen Paddock opened fire from high up in the Mandalay Hotel. This is the deadliest gun attack in recent U.S. history. The BBC's James Cook has more. The music festival was reaching its finale when the gunman opened fire, spraying bullets into a crowd. Hundreds of people scrambled for cover, but in the open air, many had nowhere to hide. The automatic gunfire was coming from above, the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino. Witnesses say it went on and on, with the gunman apparently pausing to reload multiple times. By the time police stormed the hotel room with explosives, killing the man inside, hundreds of people in the field below were dead, dying, or injured. Hospitals in the city were quickly overwhelmed with the wounded, brought in by ambulances and in private cars. An appeal has gone out for people to donate blood. And lastly, Zimbabwean authorities have gazetted a new law criminalizing unlicensed currency trading in an attempt to stem out a thriving parallel market for foreign banknotes in the country. The new law means those dealing illegally in foreign currency face up to 10 years in jail. Over the past two weeks, Zimbabwe's bond notes have devalued by up to 80% and President Robert Mugabe has threatened to deal with what he called economic sabotage. Zimbabwe's police uh, Assistance Commissioner Charity Charamba. So we welcome the law um, because it assists the police and it is also deterrent. If somebody involved in a particular offence and they are taken to prison, definitely they will not um, engage in the same in the same um, crime when there is something that is deterrent. In, in Bulawayo, they have conducted some raids. On, on, the, on those who, who um, change money, especially here they conducted um, an operation and this is going to be countrywide. Channel African News, I am Onilensensi. Thank you, Anele. 17.06 Central African Time, you're listening to Africa Digest. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition rally has called on the country's government to stop using violence and leave people to demonstrate when necessary, as allowed by the Congolese constitution. The DRC opposition rally statement has come out this Monday as the world celebrated the International Non-Violence Day. The rally emphasized that it's every Congolese duty to prevent anyone trying to remain in power by violating the constitution. Ranuel Pamweza reports from Kinshasa. The opposition rally has used the International Non-Violence Day opportunity to look at the situation the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing these last days. The December 2016 political accord says that presidential, national parliamentary and provincial parliamentary elections are to be held here at the end of next December, but the chairman of the Independent National Electoral Commission has already announced that it's technically impossible for this country to hold the any election this year. 
Both the opposition and the civil society continue to ignore the Electoral Commission's statement and believe elections must be held here this year according to the December 2016 agreement for democratic alternation to be introduced in this country. The opposition rally believes in demonstrations to try and put pressure for elections to be held, but this always faces violence from the Congolese National Police and demonstrations are prohibited here since last year. And according to this opposition rally senior executive Martin Fayulu, all this is against the DRC constitution. Demonstration prohibited is against the constitution, against our law. And uh, the constitution said that uh, any Congolese has the right, has the duty to do everything he can do to deny those people who want to stay in power by violating the constitution by force to deny them the power. This is the mandate that it was given to all Congolese. Even if they prohibit demonstration, Congolese people will go through what the constitution say. It's official. And indeed, there is too much violence here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, according to this international observer who has also noted several other human rights violations. The Bill Clinton Foundation for Human Rights Country Representative Emmanuel Cole has deplored the current situation and said what he always see here is not what is supposed to happen in a democratic country. The human rights situation is very poor. Lot of arrests, lot of clandestine prisons, lot of clandestine cells. All this cannot be existing in a country of rights. Democratic Republic of Congo might deal with things that people will really see that Congo is a country of democracy. But the way I say things, I don't believe that Congo is supposed to be called Republic Democratic of Congo and the Congo is supposed to be called a country of rights because what is writing in the constitution, they don't follow it. Regarding the current political crisis here in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Bill Clinton Foundation for Human Rights Country Representative believes the ruling coalition doesn't care of the opposition. Emmanuel Cole has called on both sides to always chart in order to prevent the chaos risk threatening the this country, he asked those on power to stop ignoring those who are not and keep in mind that there is an opposition here. They are saying, no, there's no opposition. But there's opposition. The government should not take things as fancy. They should take things into consideration, saying that they cannot buy all the oppositions. There are some oppositions in Congo which can capable to do something. So they have to chat with all politicians. Only three months remain for people of the Democratic Republic of Congo to reach the elections deadline as stated in the December 2016 accord. The question remains indeed, what can we expect on December 31st this year? Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Uneasy calm reigns in Cameroon's English-speaking regions after hundreds of thousands of English-speaking Cameroonians to find huge military presence and went hoisting flags as a sign of their independence from French-speaking Cameroon. At least a dozen people are said to have been killed, but in the French-speaking regions and the capital Yaoundé, the government and lawmakers organized gigantic political rallies, reiterating that Cameroon is one and indivisible. Mogi Kinzaga reports from Pamenda. Yeah, 
Reverend Pastor Edward Njini of the Cameroon Baptist Convention, CBC, listens to gospel music as he cleans his church in Quen, a neighborhood in the English-speaking northwestern town of Bamenda this Monday morning. Edward says just a handful of the 150 Christians he receives for the morning devotion have come to church. A few people came by for worship and then we read the communique from the governor and so we just prayed with them and asked them to go home and stay and worship at home. Edward says his Christians are afraid because the government of Cameroon has restricted the movement of people and ordered that not more than three persons should be seen moving outside in the English-speaking regions. The government also barred the movement of people into and out of the regions and from one town to the other and deployed heavily armed military to implement the order which was to stop separatist groups from declaring their independence on October 1 as they had announced. This woman shouted for help yesterday at Nangat Junction, a neighborhood in the English-speaking town of Bamenda. She said the military was throwing tear gas and beating people indiscriminately. She said after a teenage boy was beaten to death, the population decided to brave the presence of the military and blocked roads so that their vehicles should not continue to penetrate into their neighborhood. She said those who defied the order to stay at home were being arrested. Hundreds of thousands defied instructions from the government and came out to proclaim their independence but met stiff resistance from the military. Local media reported that at least a dozen people were killed in the English-speaking northwest and southwest regions, some shot by military helicopters. At least six soldiers were ambushed and severely wounded. Forty people were arrested. The separatists did not make any declarations, but their supporters hoisted flags in road junctions and some public buildings. In the northwestern town of Kumbu, three prisoners who attempted to escape after their detention camps were burned down were killed by the military. The government said the prison was burned by prisoners. Many people were arrested and this Monday, the military was still sealing what they called suspected neighborhoods and arresting more people. John Frundi, leader of Cameroon's main opposition political party, the SDF, condemned the violence to Channel Africa in a telephone interview. I don't want bloodshed. I don't want destruction. I've never wanted it. For them to react the way they are reacting is because they've been pushed to the wall. Back in Yaoundé and all major towns in the French-speaking regions, political parties, lawmakers and the government organized rallies denouncing the separatist groups. Lawmaker Tabe Tando from the English-speaking southwest region of Cameroon read a declaration in a gigantic rally organized by Cameroon Senate and National Assembly in Yaoundé. The members of parliament are outrightly condemned 
Any action aimed at destabilizing of a beloved and beautiful country reaffirm the attachment to a Cameroon which is one and indivisible as enshrined in the Constitution. Express their brotherly solidarity to the populations of the Northwest and Southwest regions, victims of the unscrupulous acts of enemies of the fatherland and peace. Schools have been closed in the English-speaking Northwest and Southwest since November when lawyers and teachers called for a strike to stop what they believe is the overuse of the French language. Violence erupted when separatists joined in and started asking for complete independence. Paul Bia has told them that he is not open for any negotiation on the form of the state and that Cameroon is one and indivisible. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Bamenda, Cameroon. Analysts say the African Union's amnesty can only work if African governments implement existing arms regulations. Last month, the AU Peace and Security Council kicked off its amnesty period for the surrender of illegally owned arms. The annual month-long initiative to be observed every September is part of the AU's efforts to implement its roadmap on practical steps to silence the guns in Africa by 2020. Under the amnesty, those who surrender their illegally owned weapons and arms shall not be subjected to disclosure, humiliation, arrest or prosecution. Anyone who doesn't comply will be in violation of national laws and the amnesty and will be arrested and prosecuted according to the laws of the relevant member state. More from the senior researcher at the South African Institute for Security Studies, Nelson Alusala. The amnesty month set by the African Union on the 4th of September 2017, aims to fulfill one of the main objectives of silencing the guns on the continent by the year 2020. It is therefore a major step in the right uh, direction that aims to use voluntary methods to retrieve illicitly circulating guns from civilian possession, and I think that's a commendable move. However, the task lies with the member states of the African Union to implement uh, that voluntary surrender. It therefore comes down on how the member states of the African Union are going to implement that strategy towards fulfilling the vision of silencing the guns on the continent by 2020. And that's where the challenge lies. So then how then should the African Union go about encouraging the African member states to comply with this amnesty? An important factor is for the African Union using uh, its regional economic mechanisms, also called regional mechanisms, to ensure that the member states at the sub-regional level espouse the call by the AU to uh, voluntarily encourage their citizens to disarm. Therefore, at the African Union, which is basically a policy formulating body, that needs to be decentralized to the regions. And from the regions, for example, if you are talking about the SADC region, uh, once the SADC Secretariat adopts that approach, then it would encourage the SADC member states at the national level to put in place uh, legal structures as well as advocacy programs that will appeal to the ordinary citizen who may be holding that illicitly acquired weapon to surrender it. And that surrender, uh, the African Union 
calls upon member states not to victimize individuals who willingly surrender the weapons. And this event is uh, scheduled to take place every month of September, every year, until 2020, when the continent will be analyzing the impact of these uh, policies. Just how necessary was it for the African Union to come up with a campaign like this? Do you think it will serve its intended purpose? Are we likely to see you know, an end to the illicit arms flow in Africa with this campaign now? It's very difficult to really uh, predict what effect the campaign will have, but we see that from the past... Uh, the African Union has uh, tried various approaches trying to reduce the nefarious impact of uh, illicitly circulating arms within the society, arms which have caused uh, exacerbated conflicts on the continent. And therefore, this is just one of the ma- uh, major steps that uh, uh, the organization is taking towards uh, reducing the side effects of uh, having these weapons in their own hands. There are other mechanisms such as, uh, for example, marking and record-keeping of of the weapon so that you are able to trace a weapon back to the original owner. And by doing so, you are able to prosecute and you are able to put liability to those individuals who may have uh, either sold their weapons uh, illegally or perhaps uh, who who may have lost those weapons and we also see that many other weapons uh, are uh, diverted from government stocks. And therefore, by marking those weapons, you're able to trace them back to the point of origin. So uh, the amnesty is just one of the other mechanisms, which are also guided by international treaties, like the United Nations Arms Trade Treaty, the United Nations Program of Action on Small Arms and Light Weapons, and many other legal instruments. So it's just one of the many other approaches that are available and that states need to implement. That was senior researcher at the South African Institute for Security Studies, Nelson Alusala, on the line talking to Ntlantla Mashangu. The third annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum conference takes place in Cape Town, South Africa. The two-day event from the 5th to the 6th of October promises to ignite fundamental changes in Africa's socio-economic landscape. Channel Africa will be there to bring you the happenings live. Join us as we and the Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum push forward the economic empowerment of women who have historically been sidelined and disregarded in predominantly patriarchal and tribal societies. Listen to Channel Africa on the 5th and the 6th of October. Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Welcome back. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, where we're bringing you news from an African perspective. South Africa joined the rest of the globe yesterday in celebrating the International Day of Older Persons. This annual event, the 17 of its kind, aims to raise awareness about issues affecting the elderly, such as discrimination, social exclusion, and elder abuse. The day was this year celebrated under the theme of Stepping into the Future, Trapping the Talents, contributions and participation of older persons in society. More from Femada Shamam, the Chief Executive Officer of the non-profit organization, the Association of the Aged. 
I think because there's so many concerns around older persons and the role that they play in society, that there absolutely is a need for populations around the world to acknowledge the contributions that older people make to society. And secondly, to actually act together in preserving their dignity and ensuring that our elders have a life worth living. So because the issues around older people are so vast and so varied, there's a need to spotlight these issues and look at, as a society, how do we contribute to a better world for them. And do you think the contributions that older people make to society are appreciated? I think not fully, because I think very often what seems to be taking the spotlight is the challenges that older people face. So very often when people think about aging people or think about our elders, they think about the deficiencies. For example, they'll think about the health ailments that seems to be a challenge. They'll think about the burden of care. Whereas it's more difficult for people to think of aging and think of it being a time in someone's life where there's opportunities to try new things. So I think because we are so focused on the negativity of it, the contributions that elders make is not easily identifiable by people. And briefly, what could these contributions be, if I if you could just outline them for us? The first one, which is very apparent, is that our elders come to us with an entire lifetime of experiences. So they have experiences on how to deal with a whole range of issues, which very often we don't seem to take the time to speak to them about and learn from them. The second thing that they bring is skills. And in a country where we have a whole lot of unemployment issues, the elders of today would have been people who were artisans in their time as well. So the issues around skills transfer become quite an important thing as well. I think there's huge opportunities as well in terms of intergenerational collaboration and working together to look at how we make our society better. In addition, you know, our older people themselves are quite fantastic storytellers. So when you're looking at young adults going into work, the caregiving role, sometimes the elders take on these roles very informally, but they can add more value in terms of assisting with the challenges that young people face. And do you think our elders are treated with the dignity that they deserve and how can they campaign for their rights and raise awareness of issues that are important to them? The first thing that they need to do is actually speak out. And I think very often, as I said, we have a society that's so focused on youth that there isn't a huge amount of education around the rights of our elders. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Older Persons, which came into being, and most people don't even know that there is this Declaration of Rights of Older Persons. There's also our Older Persons Act, which is a right-based piece of legislature. So all of the infrastructure is there to support our elders, but lots of people don't know about it. So I think the first thing is that there needs to be massive education. The second thing is that the elderly themselves need to be very vocal about what they would like to see as the world that they live in. So in knowing your rights, you then can request or you can, in some cases, demand that your rights are upheld. And I think as society, we then need to respond accordingly. So yes, the elders themselves can play a role, but I think a lot of it also has to do with people lead by example. Now, we're quite fortunate at TAFTA because we reach out to about 5,000 older people per month, and we've got about 1,700 people under roof. 
And just to say, you know, when you want to look at what dignity looks like in an older person, observe their life and observe the way they lead their life as well. So I think for the older people, if you would like the world to treat you with respect and dignity, I think a lot of it will come from the way you conduct yourself as well. I would encourage them, firstly, to stand up for the rights that they have and to engage with others as well. And lastly, what role does your organization play then in addressing the challenges the elderly are facing and also ensuring their full participation to society briefly? So as an organization, we have this vision of being leaders in innovative solutions for our elders, and we look to inspire life worth living. Now, just to take that one step back, can you imagine a world where every older person wakes up every morning with the sense that I have a life worth living? That's what TAFTA is all about. So in order to realize that vision, we provide a basket of services, which includes a whole lot of different services and products, which caters from your very basic needs to your more higher level needs. So people's need for shelter, food, those are your basic things. We've got services that will provide for your care needs as well through our care facilities or also in terms of our home-based care, which goes out into the community. In addition, you know, older people also need to be interacting with other people. So your needs for belonging and being part of something bigger are met through our service centers and our clubs. And here people can come and meet with other people who are their own age or look at intergenerational programs and basically just spend time with others meaningfully engaged in things. In addition to that, we've got a role in terms of advocacy and lobbying. So during your major international days, like your international day on awareness on abuse, we would get the elders themselves to actually march through the city of Durban to demand, basically, that they are protected and they are kept safe as well. That's Fimada Shamam, the Chief Executive Officer of the Association for the Aged, speaking to us earlier. Time now for our news headlines with Onel Nzinzi. The Democratic Republic of Congo's opposition rally has called on the country's government to stop using violence and leave people to demonstrate when necessary, as allowed by the Congolese constitution. One person has died in the western Kenyan town of Siaya during protests called by the opposition to demand the removal of electoral commission officials. And Zimbabwean authorities have gazetted a new law criminalizing unlicensed currency trading in an attempt to stem out a thriving parallel market for foreign banknotes in the country. Channel Africa News, I am Onilin Sinsi. Thank you, Nelly. It's 17.31 Central African time. The World Health Organization says it is rapidly scaling up its response to an outbreak of plague in Madagascar that has spread to the capital Antananarivo and Port Towns. The disease has so far infected more than 100 people and claimed the lives of several people in just a few weeks. Plague is endemic in the island country where around 400 cases of mostly bubonic plague are reported annually. Now for the latest on the story, we are joined on the line by the WHO's Christian Lin. Maya. Good evening and welcome to Channel Africa. Thank you. Good evening to you. 
Do you consider this outbreak to be severe and serious? It is definitely something different this year um, because what we normally have, and as you just reported, is about 400 cases bubonic in an endemic situation, uh, mainly in the highlands. Um, this year we have already found uh, in the beginning of the season, because September only st is the start of the season, um, about more than half of the cases, more than half of 130 cases um, being pneumonic, a much more severe uh, form of the plague which infects the lungs and if left untreated can lead to death within 24 hours. So therefore, yes, this is a different situation that we have seen in the previous years. And how does the disease spread and what conditions can cause it to thrive? Now, we have, there we have to make a distinction between the separate uh, forms of the plague. The bubonic uh, is normally spread by the flea, uh, which, the bites of the flea, which are housed by rats. So poor sanitation, um, garbage areas, and that, that can make the rats, of course, uh, live and spread, and therefore the fleas living and uh, feeding on the rats can spread easily to the humans. Um, that is the situation normally when you have the endemic and the bubonic situation. The, the uh, pneumonic, though, um, is spreading much easier from person to person. Um, that is the one which goes into the lungs and therefore cre uh, creates a very serious form of, of, of lung disease, which then can lead to the death. So that's something which is much more severe also because it can spread easier, again, from person to person by coughing by droplets. Uh, this makes a... a totally different sort of precautions necessary. And this uh, current outbreak, does it differ from the previous ones experienced in the country? Yes, that's what we see. So the, the big difference right now is A, that it has a big, big rate of pneumonic, so the easy to spread and much more dangerous sort of the plague, and that it has spread uh, further. It has reached large urban areas, including the capital Antananarivo, and at least two of the port towns, uh, Tuamazina, and Mahajanga, uh, which of course makes it interesting because from there it could, in theory, uh, also spread further. Any concerns of the disease spreading further at this stage and are there any preventive measures? Well, the preventive measures are, of course, first of all, hygiene in terms of uh, protecting yourself from the flea bites that concerns the bubonic plague. Then, of course, if um, very important, whenever you think you have been in contact with a person um, who has uh, symptoms of, of plague, you should immediately seek help. That means if it gets treated and if you get antibiotics uh, in the early days of, in the early hours of the treatment, the early stages of treatment, it's a very curable disease. Um, so early cure, early detection is of high importance in this case. So that makes monitoring and self-monitoring uh, very important. And of course for the authorities, that means once you find a, content, a case of a pneumonic plague uh, patient, you would need to look for the, uh, for the contacts, would have to find the contacts and administer them uh, and, and uh, monitor them and see if you need to uh, treat them or at least uh, put them under surveillance. And lastly, Christian, are you then assisting the government as an organization to bring the outbreak under control? Yes, the government has asked uh, the World Health Organization for help and the WHO has already re released about $300,000 of emergency funds. We have deployed staff and personnel to the, uh, to the island, to the country, in order to assist the government. Um, we have also 
ask uh, laboratory capacities to stock up. Um, we do everything we can because also now it is important to educate people, to uh, train and educate again the health, health staff and to let everybody know in what uh, ways they can deal with the disease. But also um, exactly that what I just said, to deal with the disease. So it's important to face it, um, uh, to look where it's spreading and to eradicate to the best possible. Well, thank you very much for your time, Christian. Thank you very much. That's Christian Alinmaya of the World Health Organization. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective... Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunya Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Zimbabwean authorities have gazetted a new law aimed at criminalizing cash vending in a bid to restore sanity in the finance sector. Anyone caught changing cash on the streets would be jailed for 10 years, the new law says. Government came up with these measures following speculative messages on social media leading to the panic buying of goods and brief shortages. Simon Muchema reports from Bulawayo. Effective immediately, cash vending has officially become illegal and one has to obtain a license to do so in Zimbabwe. The instrument 122A of 2017, Exchange Control Amendment Regulations of 2017 Number 5, in order to deal with the widespread cash vending on the streets, attracting a jail term of up to 10 years. This came in response to the panic buy crisis that happened a week ago and gave the government a wake-up call. The bond notes have lost value against the greenback. The Zimbabwe Republic Police spokesperson Cherit Charamba welcomed the new law but urged courts to implement the law effectively. In, in Bulawayo, they have conducted some raids on those who change money, especially here they conducted um, an operation and this is going to be countrywide. I'm sure you can guess what, how it motivates the police. It's obvious. If you arrest someone today and that person is fined $20 and that person goes back to the street and the same police have to arrest him. And the moment they finish paying, they are back on the street. So obviously if there's any law, it, it also empowers us because for some time those people will go to prison and we don't need to worry about them. So we welcome the law um, because it assists the police and it is also deterrent. The new law came at a time when the country was preparing to host the 10th World Tourism Expo in Bulawayo, the second biggest city in the country. President Robert Mugabe said the case shortage was as a result of sabotage. The finance minister, Patrick Chinamasa, also confirmed this during the official opening of the Tourism Expo. And you know, when you look at our economic performance so far, all the economic indicators are in the right direction. They are pointing upwards. Agriculture is up. 
if because of his contribution, we are now projecting a growth of 3.7% at the end of this year. That is an indicator that the economy is growing. We are coming, also coming out of deflation. It's very clear that we've come out of the deflation, which is not a good thing. When you're in a deflation, it's like you're in a mortuary. We are beginning to experience modest inflation. And at the end of August, the inflation was at 0.14%. And the SADAC benchmark is between 3 and 7%. So all the indicators are in the right direction. Tourism also is up. Exports are up. Now, these are stories that we should be telling to the outside world. While this government is trying to destroy sanity in the finance industry, other key sectors like tourism could easily be affected as Zimbabwean banks do not deal in foreign exchange. This was evident in Bulawayo during the tourism expo. Tourism is an important sector in terms of its contribution to the key economic aggregates including national output. We know that I think you are contributing something in the region of 11% to our GDP. You can do more. This is a low-hanging fruit, and I think you can grow this sector quickly and rapidly, and you should do more than 11%, and would encourage you to do more than 11% contribution, not just to GDP, but also to employment creation and also to generation of foreign currency, among others. Although the tourism sector is relying heavily on the Chinese source market, already cash shortages had left Zimbabwe at the bottom in SADAG. Zimbabwe Tourism Authority boss Karikoga Kaseke revealed. We are not doing much marketing board responsible for marketing for this destination. We are not doing much in that, in that region. The statistics from the representative from China, China is currently rated the highest spender by UNWTO. It has got the highest outbound market compared to other markets, followed uh, by other markets, uh, Germany, uh, United Kingdom, are all below China in terms of generating, in terms of generating tourists. So anyone who is serious about tourism and looking at the trends must be serious also about uh, China. Marcus Lee, the chief executive officer of China Ready and Welcome China, had this to say. From my understanding, they have done promotion previously, but uh, the result was not what you want, and uh, not much Chinese came. I asked from a Chinese tour operator here, they reported to me yes, uh, last week, they say last year only three, around 3,000 Chinese came. The number can be much improved if we do the right thing the first time. In Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. 26 days to go. To the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Hashtag the year of Oliver Tambo. This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. 
from an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunye Nzovu and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Time now for our economics news with Wisani Matebula. South African economists have warned that the recent transfer of additional funds from the Treasury to South African Airways will not sit well with credit ratings agencies. Treasury says the bailout will prevent the airline from defaulting on its loan to Citibank. However, economists say the transfer will lead to toxic conditions which may result in another ratings downgrade. Head of financial markets at ETM Analytics, Jana van de Fenter, says South Africa's fiscus is already under significant pressure. That's essentially taxpayers' money which is being used to bail out um, an entity like SAA. It's a decision which is not budget neutral and highlights how we are not in a good situation. SAA will will require more bailouts further down the line because the entity is struggling to raise funding in the market. And lack of information remains one of the key reasons many South African companies are failing to secure business opportunities with the World Bank in developing country markets. This is compared to their Asian, European, Australian and U.S. counterparts. South African Trade and Industry Department, through its Trade Invest Africa, hosted a conference with the World Bank and businesses to see how South Africa could take advantage of funds available through the bank. Amina Akram reports. The World Bank this year announced that it would roll out $57 billion for financing sub-Saharan Africa over the next three fiscal years. The bulk of the $45 billion funding comes from the International Development Association. This money is already available as loans for clients, both private and government, for project development. And Uganda Securities Exchange has received formal approval from the Capital Markets Authority to operate a demutualized entity stock exchange in accordance with the requirements of the Capital Markets Authority Act 2016 and the Capital Markets Authority Regulations 2016. The statement indicates that uh, the Uganda Securities Stock Exchange will become a self-regulated organization with a change in its governance and managerial structure. At the moment, brokerage companies jointly own the stock exchange and set rules for themselves. Humuzo Mupulani reports. Under the current status quo, it is difficult for new brokerage companies to be admitted to the USE since their competitors must all agree to admit any prospective member. According to the 2014-2015 National Budget speech, there are 40,000 registered shareholders in Uganda, a fraction of the country's estimated 40 million population. The USE is carrying out investor education to attract more Ugandans to buy, sell and even raise more money through the bourse. Now for your financial indicators, we've got the dollar at 13.54, South African rents 10.22, Botswana Pula 9.68, Zambia Kwacha also trading at 0.74.
to the British pound and 0.84 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,274, platinum $910 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up to $52.52 per barrel, which indeed might affect how South Africans will purchase uh, their petrol, which is set to increase on Wednesday. This is due to Brent crude oil demand going up, and that's how it's looking. Time now for our sports news with Musebudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, Stuart Baxter, head coach of South Africa's men's national football team, has called on Cape Town City captain Robin Johannes as a replacement for injured Bedvets captain Tulani Thachwayo. Now, Thachwayo has been ruled out of Saturday's 2018 World Cup qualifier with Burkina Faso at the FNB Stadium with a knee problem. Johannes has impressed for Cape Town City since their formation last year. The one-year-old has uh, three international caps, having made his debut in a Kosafa Cup match against the Seychelles back in 2005. Now, Baxter has also roped in Mamelodi Sundown's centre-back Mojeka Madisha as a replacement for suspended cap- um, Kaiser Chiefs defender Eric Matohom. Bafana Bafana are bottom of Group D with a point from three matches, four points behind Senegal and five points shy of Cape Verde, as well as Bikina Faso. Meanwhile, the South African women's senior football team will face Sweden in two friendly matches in early 2018 in Cape Town. The first clash will take place behind closed doors on the 18th of January, while the second fixture is scheduled for the 21st of January 2018. This will be the third time that the two nations meet. They have only faced each other in Olympic competitions, and the South Africans will be hoping for a third time lucky. The first match took place at the 2012 London Olympic Games with Banyana going down 4-1. The most recent meeting was at the 2016 Olympic Games where South Africa lost by single goal to nil. Now Sweden is currently ranked 11th in the world and 5th in Europe while South Africa is ranked 52nd in the world and 5th on the African continent. South African football side Mamelodi Sundowns were the big winners at the Gauteng Sports Awards, walking away with three awards from the glittering ceremony held at the Silver Star Casino west of Johannesburg on Sunday night. Now, the African champions scooped the Team of the Year award, while coach Pito Mosimani won the Coach of the Year award. Thompo Kegana was crowned Sports Personality of the Year. Mosimani says he's pleased that the club continues to get recognized for its success. Yeah, we are humbled, uh, and we need to remain humble. Uh, but we we should also celebrate being acknowledged for the performance that we have put, especially on the league and uh, and the Champions League in Kiev, by representing the country and uh, and also our team. Um, for the, I think, for me, the the most important award is is, is the club award because. It recognizes everybody, even those who were not nominated, uh, meaning the whole team. But uh, I think Kekana deserves the award because 
uh, he's been nominated for so many awards for the last three years, even to the last award of FIFA Puskas Award. He has never won one. So, and and I think it is time. You know, no good things goes to those who wait, and he deserves it. On to cricket news, South Africa's national cricket team has won the first test by 333 runs against Bangladesh on the fifth and final morning in Porchestrum in South Africa's northwest province. The visitors lost their final seven wickets for 41 runs as Gakhis Rabada as well as Kevash Maharaj ran rampant. Now the Proteus only needed 86 minutes to bowl Bangladesh out for the first sub-100 score in the fourth innings of a match. Here is Captain Faf Duplessis talking to Sean Pollock after the win. Very happy. I mean, it's a nice and easy game for them coming in. Obviously, Aiden probably thinking at the moment that Test cricket is very easy. Um, he, he played really well. Um, and Andila didn't get much opportunity, but when he got an opportunity, he got a wicket um, and also got a nice red inker there. So it's a good way to start both their Test careers. Looking forward to maybe a bit more bounce of bloom? Definitely. I mean, it's going to be, I'm on that groundsman's case um, to try and make sure that we get the conditions we ask for. So I'm expecting a little bit more bounce and carry. Meanwhile, the second test will take place on the 6th of October in Bloemfontein in the Free State Province. And finally, in tennis news, world number one Garbin Muguruza retired ill from the first round of the China Open while US Open winner Sloane Stevens went out after suffering a shock defeat. Muguruza had suggested in the build-up that uh, she was not fully fit after a leg injury and she lost the first set 6-1 to unseeded Babora Skrekova on the Czech Republic. Meanwhile, US Open champion Sloane Stevens tumbled out in the first round for a second week running, this time at the hands of qualified fire Christine McHale, Stevens went down 6-3 in 6-love. Well, those are sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. At 17.54 Central African time, time to do a quick recap of our top stories right here on Africa Digest. The DRC's opposition rally calls on the country's government to stop using violence. And analysts say the AU's amnesty can only work if African governments implement existing arms regulations. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour from myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Rianda Maome, technical producer Dumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. You can send us your comments on the show to info at channelafrica.co.za or SMS plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. And taking us to the top of the hour is suited by Shekina.
Just don't stop 